Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon Wamasey. One of my writers of this case, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Has written me... Oh, <laughs> I recorded a couple of these last week, which were just particularly brutal. So today, I'm glad to see that Bernie Madoff has come across my desk. I mean, glad to see in terms of my, like, oh my God. Sometimes casual criminalist just gets absolutely brutal, doesn't it? The world is a very violent place. So this guy, financial criminal, which is a nice break. And I know we all know how this ends up. And he ends up in jail for like 150 years and then dies in prison and stuff. But even though I'm sure that was a really, really miserable time for him, it's not like, you know, well, I was going to say it's not that his kids were murdered, but I believe like didn't one of his kids kill themselves. The body of Mark Madoff was found in his New York City apartment this morning. Police found his older son, Mark, dead in his New York apartment on Saturday. Which is absolutely brutal. Um, anyway, let's just jump in. Bernie Madoff, everybody. A nice uh, somewhat break from the usual fucking horror show that is this show. Oh, if you're new here, um, the format of the show is I've never read this before. Um, and uh, yeah, that's I'm, I'm going to read it. We're going to learn about it together, aren't we? It's going to be fun. In 2007, as the opening bell of the New York Stock Exchange signaled the start of the trading day, countless men and women in sharp tailored suits picked up their phones, opened their laptops, and prepared for yet another day of big investments and bigger returns. Buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. Oh, the stock market. I don't understand anything about it. <laughs> this time, the US economy was slightly bearish as years of rapid growth had pushed the markets to an all-time high, which usually means that a steep downturn is inevitable. I... Having it, it's probably very boring, but I find it personally interesting. I was doing like a thing in a law firm. Like I studied law at university and you do these things where you go and like spend some time in a law firm. And I, this was an, uh, definitely is a large law firm that will remain 100% unnamed. Oh, come on. And I'm doing like, so you spend like an afternoon in different departments and stuff. And I'm in this one department and it's called like um, securitization or something, or maybe that's what they were doing in that department. And this was in... I think 2007. And basically, this was before the 2008 crash, right? And so I'm in there with this, there's the lawyer and then there's like their associate lawyer or whatever, the junior person. And there's me and there's, I think it's just one other person. They're like, like one other student. And we're sitting in there and they're describing to us how for banks, because it's corporate law, how for banks, they basically just draw up these contracts. And the contracts are basically taking lots of debt and bad debt and repackaging it like securitizing it into like investable assets or whatever. And I'm seeing that. And this feels like not a real story, but like it's a real story. It's 2007 before the shit hits the fan. 
And we're just like, well, how does that work? You can't just like take an A and a B and put them in one thing and then call it an A because there's a B in there as well, except it was probably more like D and E and F, like in terms of quality of assets. And they just bundled it all together, send it back to like the investment bank. And then the investment bank gets people to invest in it, like a triple A AAA rated asset or whatever. And we're like, me and the other student, like, well, how's that work? And they're like, it's like magic. And then a year later, the economy goes into the toilet because of exactly that. And uh, like I say, it feels like something I'm making up, but it happened. <laughs> it's very strange. I've told that story so many times that I'm beginning to doubt the details of it because it seems just so insane. <laughs> but that's how I remember it. Still, despite this uncertainty, many believed the markets were stable and that if there was a collapse, it would be localized to one or two specific industries while the majority of the economy would be fine. Unfortunately, as every American is now aware, these men and women were about to witness a near total collapse of the US economy. I think this is the most significant financial crisis in the post-war period. Has fallen about 18%. Heck is going on down here. The stock market is now down 21%. The U.S. government said it won't bail out Lehman, which last week announced more than $3.9 billion in losses. In late 2008, the U.S. found itself in crisis after numerous economic catastrophes happened simultaneously, the largest of which was the collapse of the U.S. housing market. During this time, millions of people lost their homes, their jobs, and their life savings, and the whole ordeal was so bad that it spilled over to the rest of the world, which resulted in the global financial crisis. But how exactly did this happen? Was everybody asleep at the wheel? Where were the regulators tasked with ensuring that something like this didn't happen? There's a brilliant movie about all of this stuff. Is it called The Big Short? Is that the one that's about this? It's excellent. I don't know. I do enjoy these financial movies. They make them very tense. There's another great movie called Margin Call, which is slightly less famous than that one. But it basically has a who's who of actors in it. They basically just were like, yeah, what, what should we do with this movie? Let's just get a lot of good actors and put them in a room together and give them a really good script. And it's... Mwah. Brilliant movie. Well, in the years leading up to what we now call the Great Recession, mortgage lenders have been approving home loans for people who couldn't afford them. Officially, these loans were called subprime loans. However, unofficially, they were referred to as ninja loans, which was an acronym for no income, no job, no assets. Essentially, lenders approved loans without even verifying a borrower's income or double-checking any of the information provided to them. That meant the person could have claimed to be making $100,000 per year, and the loan officer would have shrugged their shoulders, approved the loan, and collected their fee, which is just mental. Like, yes, of course. How much do you make a year? Uh, I'm unemployed. A hundred grand. And then it's like, boom, your house, sir. If this sounds incredibly risky to you, that's because it was. As this massive influx of newly approved... Un I like that this is a true crime podcast and we're basically just talking about finance. It's, I know this video, this, this episode's probably got like barely any views compared to all the others, but it's just such a relief sometimes. <laughs> And look, I'm trying to make it as entertaining as possible. And so is Matt, obviously, because this is... I'm, I'm, I'm absorbed already, and we're talking about subprime loans, which is something I just couldn't care less about. As this massive influx of newly approved, unqualified buyers into the market, demanding for housing quickly outpaced the number of available homes, and as a result, prices skyrocketed. This resulted in a housing bubble, which simply means that the average price of homes had massively outpaced the intrinsic value of those homes. Basically, they were ridiculously overpriced, and as soon as everyone realized it, the bubble would burst and prices would rapidly fall. Unfortunately, nobody noticed, or cared, until it was far too late. They say that, right? They're like, no one realizes how ridiculously overpriced. People realize this. It's like, I'm from the UK. You look at houses there. It's ridiculous. I live in Prague. You look at the houses here and you're like, that's insane. You compare the prices of apartments here to what people make, and you're like, what is happening? It's just insane. 
And the UK is even worse. You look at it and you're like, how is that? How That makes no sense. People will buy a house and it's like, that's half the money you'll ever make in your life on your house. And it's like, surely that's not responsible. And it's not people's fault. It's like, I guess it's just, uh, there's not enough supply or whatever. But it's like, houses are mad expensive. Seeing an opportunity to make even more money, the banks then began funding the construction of hundreds of thousands of new homes that they hoped to sell to these unqualified buyers for the inflated prices, which they incorrectly speculated would continue to rise. When the economic downturn started in 2007, the people who should never been offered a loan in the first place began to default on their mortgages. This meant the banks were forced to foreclose on the homes in order to resell them and recoup a portion of their losses. This should have been no problem, considering market demand for homes was at an all-time high. However, by this point, the bubble was beginning to burst. Now, demand was low and as such prices were falling, they continued to fall as more and more people fell behind on their bills and the banks were left owning a seemingly endless supply of new and foreclosed homes that were worth much less than they'd originally been paid for them. Didn't I feel like the market dropped like 30%? I think that's about right. And whenever I'm buying a house or something, I'm always like, I, I have that figure in mind. I'm always like, if this dropped 30%, would I be up this creek? And if the answer is no, then I'm like, cool, that is a house I can afford. I mean, if the bank says I can afford it. Um, but other than that, I'm like, if I can't handle a 30% drop in that property price, then I'm like, no, let's get something safer. Although over 2.3 million people defaulted on their mortgages in a single year, at the time that was about 1.8% of all homes in America. This meant that the banks had lost trillions of dollars worth of investments, and soon it became clear that even the largest banks in America were nearing insolvency and at risk of failing. Had this happened, the value of the US dollar would have likely plummeted and the entire country may have soon found itself bankrupt. Yeah, I remember this. The banks were there were Lehman Brothers collapsed, Bear Stearns. That was another 2008 victim, right? I had a mate who worked at Lehman's, who was a few years older than me, um, yeah, and he lost his job. Thankfully, despite it being a controversial move, the US federal government stepped in and provided a bailout for the banks to ensure, and he wasn't a banker, he wasn't one of these people who was behind this, he like worked in their tech department, like sorting out the computers and stuff, so he was kind of bummed, because he's like, I didn't even do this! Uh, so the government steps in, they provide a bailout for the banks to ensure that they don't fail, the banks had gambled with everyone else's money, and in the end they'd suffered few consequences for it. The American taxpayer was left holding the bag, as always. So why did nobody stop this from happening? Well, as people search for an answer to this question, the agency in charge of regulating the banks and preventing these types of catastrophes from occurring, the Securities and Exchange Commission (SEC) was right, rightfully placed under a tremendous amount of scrutiny. As it turns out, they were underfunded, understaffed, and did not possess the necessary authority to toss in a healthy dose, dose of corruption, and the result is a government agency that had ignored numerous warnings regarding the big banks' risky behaviors and allowed blatantly illegal practices to go unpunished. All I know about the SEC. <laughs> Is are they always like riding Elon Musk for like, did you tweet that you're taking your company private when you're not or something like that? And then they fine him like $50 million or something absurd. So obviously they're, 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 they're on Twitter. Were you not looking at all the banks and it? As the entire country dragged the SEC through the mud for its failures, another group of people were just as angry at them for a similar reason. For years, a, ma a man named Harry Markopoulos had been desperately trying to sound the alarm about a fraudster that had, oper had been operating the largest Ponzi scheme in human history. As Markopoulos had informed them multiple times, this scheme affected hundreds of New York's wealthiest individuals, as well as famous celebrities and international businessmen from around the world. However, despite his efforts, the SEC seemed uninterested in what he had to say. And Markopoulos. I think it was last year or two years ago, sounded the alarm about a very large company that I'm not going to name because, like, holy sh**, 
do I not want that attention? Uh, by attention, I mean getting sued by an enormous company like that you've definitely heard of. And Markopoulos was like, their books don't look right. Something dodgy is going on. And people were like, no, Markopoulos, it's fine. Everything's fine. And that news story just seemed to go away and I never really followed up on it. And that company seems okay. But it's like, the last time he was right. He was really right. So I'm not sure what happened there. After this episode's done, I'm going to look it up. And if you'd like to look it up yourself, you're more than welcome to. There's a really big company that he was like, that sketch. That all changed during the housing crisis when, as uncertainty took hold over the markets, people began to panic and withdraw their money in order to reduce their potential losses. When this happened, some people found that the money they had invested was not where it was supposed to be. Those people had entrusted their investment funds to a man named Bernie Madoff, the founder of Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC, one of the most respected companies in New York, a company that on paper managed over $50 billion worth of assets. What followed was shock and disbelief, as Bernie Madoff himself admitted that most of the money he'd collected over the years was gone because it spent it on a luxurious lifestyle that few could ever imagine. Holy sh**. It's just like, yeah, you got me. <laughs> It's like, no, the money's gone. I wasn't investing. I was spending it on private jets and caviar. God damn, it went on for a long time. I can't believe no one listened to Markopoulos. I keep wanting to call him Mark. What was his name? What's his first name? I like using the first names because it just feels like super casual. Harry! No one was listening to Hazza. It's unbelievable. After this dramatic reveal, the government was tasked with unraveling decades of deception, fraud, embezzlement, and corruption as they attempted to figure out how Madoff had gotten away with it for over 40 years and and why the SEC had failed to stop it. I guess he's like, yeah, uh, maybe there was, he just knew that at some point it was like, I'm f***ed, I'm so and he's just like chilling and he's just like, yeah, what happens, it happens. And it's like, cool, I'm going to go off to prison and you guys are going to have to figure out that mess because I'm already in prison. You got me. <laughs> or did he, maybe, I don't know. I don't remember what he did. He must have tried and defended himself or something, right? The up and comer. Now, before we take a look at how one man managed to con some of the wealthiest and most financially literate people in the world out of billions, let's start back at the beginning. Bernie Madoff was born in Queens, New York, on April the 29th, 1938. He was the middle child of Ralph and Sylvia Madoff, and had an older sister named Sondra and a younger brother named Peter. Growing up, the Madoff family was not extraordinarily wealthy as they would later become, but Ralph did provide for his family by owning and operating a company that imported and distributed textiles. In high school, Bernie claims that he was an ambitious young man who had always held multiple part-time jobs in addition to attending his classes, and this ambition attracted the attention of a young woman named Ruth Alpen. Bernie and Ruth met at a summer camp in upstate New York, and shortly after graduating high school, the pair wed. Soon, they had two children of their own, Mark and Andrew. In 1956, Bernie began attending college at Hofstra University, where he studied political science and accounting. He graduated four years later in 1960 and promptly began working on a degree in law. However, after completing his first year, Madoff dropped out to focus on something more important to him than education, making money. That year, Madoff founded an investment firm using $5,000 that he says he earned while working as a lifeguard throughout high school and college. That's a lot of money he earns as a lifeguard. Like $5,000. That's going to be well, at least 10 times that today. Although it's unclear if this claim is just one of those corporate myths that surround successful companies that people love to fabricate for good publicity. Yeah, I don't know. There's a point where people get successful and they always want to like mention how they used to not be successful or they came from some like poor family or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I was working as a lifeguard and stuff like this. I don't know. Bernie Madoff's daddy was a businessman. He imported and distributed textiles. It's like, you probably weren't, weren't that poor. I'm always like, no, I wasn't poor. Like, my family were, you know, 
not poor. And did that cause an advantage for me in my life? Yes, absolutely. Of course it did. <laughs> of course it did. Oh, geez. Just, it's okay. That's okay. In addition to this paltry sum, Madoff also received a small loan of $50,000 from his father-in-law, Saul Alpen, and from a friend of Saul's, Carl Shapiro. Um, $50,000 in like, what, 1960s money? 1970s money? That's a lot of money today. That's like at least half a mil. I always remember because Mad Men was like 60s and early 70s, right? And you always just had to add, basically add on a zero to the end of any numbers they were talking about. So if they're like $2, it's $20. If they're like $100,000, it's a million dollars. And so just add on an extra zero. It's a lot of money. Altogether, this early seed money left Bernie with approximately $155,000 to play with, which when adjusted for inflation, comes out to about 1.5 million pounds, uh, dollars. God damn, got it exactly right. Initially, Madoff took this money and began acting as a broker dealer for his friends' and family's investments, as well as anyone he could persuade to trust him with their money. This meant that he managed their portfolios for a small cut of the profits. He used this money to invest in penny stocks, and despite their poor reputation today, the strategy worked out well for him. Yes, despite being a self-professed small scrappy company, Madoff's firm was extraordinarily successful as Bernie used his skills in finance to amass a sizable amount of wealth for himself and his investors. He did this by working with smaller investors who did not have enough money to attract the attention of the larger investment firms. He was more than happy to take the scraps. Scraps. It's like you started with 1.5 million today's money. God damn. Which speaks to like the fact that maybe he had money growing up. Maybe he was around money because he was like scraps. 1.5, uh, like what? $1.5 million today. It's a lot of money. While up to this point he managed to do well for himself, Madoff had bigger ambitions than being the investor that your plumber hires to oversee his child's education funds. He wanted to compete with the big fish on Wall Street, and that meant stepping up his game and developing something that nobody, not even the major banks, had access to. With the help of his brother, Peter, Bernie developed a computer-driven trading system that allowed his firm to place electronic orders directly instead of having to call a broker to place them in person. This technology was revolutionary at the time. Wait, is this is how it's done today. Did Bernie Madoff's brother invent this sh And it was later used to establish the National Association of Securities Dealers Automated Quotation Stock Market. Oh my god, that's a mouthful. Is that the NASDAQ? N-A-S-D-A-Q? Bernie Madoff's brother? No! I can't, I can't believe that. That's amazing. That mouthful would later be more widely known as the acronym NASDAQ. Bernie himself even served as a member of the board for the NASDAQ in the early 90s. This technology, along with a large amount of legitimate success, made Madoff into the legend that he was in the 80s and allowed him to legally accumulate approximately $100 million per year. Holy sh**, dude. However, for Madoff, it was never enough. Oh my god. Although I get that vibe. Like, I, when I was young, I was always like, I'd like to make this much money a year, and then I make that much money. And you're like, well, okay, I guess it just wasn't enough. <laughs> And it's not like I lead some, like, crazy lifestyle. It's just, I don't know, you just, it's just like, okay, what's next? Like, just a, a new goal. So I get that. Although $100 million per year, I'll probably be like, cool, can chill now. <laughs> How do you, do you even spend that? The Ponzi scheme. As Bernie's business continued to grow, he moved his main office to the 19th floor of the Lipstick Building on 3rd Avenue in Manhattan, New York. From here, Bernie surrounded himself with his closest advisors as well to his own family. You see, by this point, Bernie's children were grown, and after graduating from university themselves, both Mark and Andrew began working at their father's firm full-time in the early 1990s. Ruth was also hired and worked for Bernie as a secretary, a bookkeeper, and later the company's director. Bernie's brother, Peter, acted as the firm's chief compliance officer, and Peter's daughter, Shana, was one of the firm's numerous attorneys. As you can see, Madoff's business and personal lives were intimately connected. Yet, yeah, basically, 
it's like nepotism run wild it's like um i'm just watching that the new season of that uh succession tv show which is ah oh, such a good show hey hey mother and yes, I'm, I'm aware that most of my knowledge about finance comes from movies and TV shows. I like Billions as well, that's a good one. Now, despite having already achieved legitimate success and accumulating more money than he could ever spend in his entire life, Bernie's greed drove him to expand his already substantial wealth using one of the most well-known scams in recent history. In addition to his regular investment work, Madoff rented a second office, a secret office, two floors below his firm's main workspace, and began meeting with prospective clients under the guise of a unique business opportunity. He told the these new clients that the reason for secrecy was that developed a new complicated and highly lucrative investment strategy that he could use to reliably produce returns that outperformed the market regardless of how the economy was performing. He said that if anybody, even certain members of his own staff, learned about this new strategy, the other money managers on Wall Street might catch wind of it and the whole plan would go belly up. This is genius. Look, we all know Bernie Madoff does a Ponzi scheme, right? The Ponzi scheme, which I'm sure, I'm sure Matt will explain in a bit more depth, is like, uh, as long as more money is coming in you can pay it out because let's say there's like 100 grand in there and you're paying 10% a year as long as people keep putting money in it's never gonna be a problem until you've got all of the money in the world and then you know or no more money comes in or there's an economic collapse or something like that but what's particularly genius about this is that that works for regular people but Bernie Madoff is also super famous as an investor for legitimate business so he's got the ultimate con here and which is probably why it's the biggest con of all time. Remember, Bernie Madoff was a big name on Wall Street by this point, and he had the wealth, the reputation, and the confidence needed to sell this narrative. For those that he chose to be a part of his club, the offer was nearly irresistible. They asked few questions out of fear of missing out on what they believed to be a fantastic opportunity. I would fall for this con. Like, I think most I I think I'm someone who's probably less likely to fall for cons than most people. Maybe that sounds arrogant. But I don't think I've ever been, like, super hard conned, like, as far as I'm aware. Or maybe I've just been perfectly conned. But this is so... Can you imagine meeting with someone who's famous and they've handled your money before and they've got a huge reputation to lose if they were conning you? You'd believe them. You'd absolutely believe them. Bernie then accepted their money, moved it into one of his own personal bank accounts, and began using this account as his own personal piggy bank. He purchased multiple mansions, luxury yachts, cars, jewelry, and everything else that he wanted. Soon, he and his family went from living the high life to living a life of extreme wealth that is completely incomprehensible to most people. Anything he wanted, he purchased. Anything he could not buy, he had made. There was nothing in the natural world that was beyond his reach. To ensure that his investors felt taken care of, Madoff falsified statements that showed healthy returns of between 10 and 12% and continuously transferred their money between multiple accounts, including overseas accounts, to create the illusion that stock trades were being performed. In reality, the only money that these investment funds were generating was a relatively minuscule amount of interest that was in no way capable of delivering the type of returns he promised. So this is one of those situations where it just seems like one day he was like, cool, I'm just going to con people now. Like, it's not like, I always think, in this situation, surely he's fallen down some hole where he got in some, some trouble, he's not making as much money as he used to, people are knocking on the door being like, we need you to pay the bills. And he's like, okay, I've got to do it just one time. And then one time turns into twice and then 10 times. And then before you know it, you're running a giant Ponzi scheme. But it's just, it, I don't know if there's more to this that Matt's going to get to. But it just seems like one day he was like, fuck it, let's go, which is nuts. To those that attempted to cash out early, early, they were paid what they were owed and everything seemed 
seemed beyond legitimate. What those early investors had no way of knowing was that Bernie was not paying them with money that had been earned through stock trades as he claimed. He was simply returning what remained of their original investment after topping it off with funds from new investors. This is what is referred to as a classic Ponzi scheme. Named after Charles Ponzi, the uh, I don't think he was the original guy that came up with it, but he was like one of the big... OG Ponzi scheme dudes. In short, a Ponzi scheme works by presenting a plausible investment opportunity to potential investors, collecting funds from as many of them as possible, and using the funds collected from newer investors to pay off older investors. The fact that the original investors are being paid makes the scheme seem legitimate, and it allows it to recruit even newer investors and continue paying out the growing list of older investors. This is what happened with Bernie's scheme as well. Those who were satisfied with his work began to unknowingly recruit new victims, and their money was added to the account of Poole's money, which, by the early 2000s, had grown into the billions. Now, if you're familiar with Ponzi schemes, you're likely familiar with their flaws as well. And if not, Allow me to explain, yeah, just in case it's not blindingly obvious. <laughs> Essentially, a Ponzi scheme requires whoever is orchestrating the scheme to do two things, recruit new investors and keep the old investors happy. So long as new investors are bringing in new money the old invest and the old investors are happy and not requesting that their funds be returned to them, then the scheme can continue on. If they cannot recruit new investors, then there will be no new money to pay out the old investors and the scheme will eventually be exposed. If they cannot keep the old investors happy, then too many of them will request to withdraw their funds at once and the scheme will eventually be exposed. If, God forbid, both of those things happen at once, then the scheme would be exposed almost immediately. For Bernie, the man who was capable of doing both, it took over two decades for the House of Cards to come tumbling down. It's pretty crazy that he got away with it for so long. Also, you know, he knows. How did he end up in, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I can't remember exactly how they got him in the end. But it's like, bro, if you're running some sort of giant crime thing that's going on and you also have like access to yachts and stuff how do you not have like some escape plan where you fly down to mexico you have your face swapped with someone else's face and then you i don't know live in a castle somewhere in in belize how is that how is that not part of your plans although i guess they they raid him or whatever right it's got to be a raid right because he must have had an exit strategy he's a he's a smart man the whistleblower Around the turn of the millennium, some people within the finance community were beginning to take note of Bernie's unprecedented success. Just as he had warned his secret investors, once people learned that Madoff had developed a method of obtaining higher-than-average returns, they all wanted to get in on the action. That's when a Boston-based investment firm, Rampant Investment Management, tasked a man named Harry Markopoulos to analyze and reverse-engineer Bernie's strategy. Uh-oh! Markopoulos, who already worked for the firm as a derivative trader, was determined to succeed in his new position. However, after less than four hours of researching and attempting to replicate Madoff, off's numbers, he came to a startling conclusion. Bernie Madoff's self-professed strategy, a strategy known as a split-strike conversion, was mathematically incapable of generating the returns that he claimed. It took him four hours. Not a team. Not a team. One dude. Four hours to figure out that it's not possible. If I was that dude, I'd be like, nah, I must have made a mistake. <laughs> Let's consult with some other very intelligent people. He's like, nah, it's not working. <laughs> you would be like, nah, I must be wrong. I must be wrong. How could I be right? And now, I'm not even going to attempt to explain the maths behind Markopoulos' calculations or how he came to this conclusion, primarily because I don't understand it myself, but all you need to know is that he was right. 
After double and triple checking his work to ensure what he believed was true, he presented his findings to the management team at Rampart and then decided to go as far as submitting a formal complaint with the SEC. In this complaint, Markopoulos wrote that the returns generated by Bernie Madoff's secret strategy were impossible, and even asserted that he believed Madoff was operating a Ponzi scheme. He cracked the case himself, saw what nobody else could see, and then hand-delivered the evidence to the authorities via a neatly typed document to do with as they pleased. <laughs> it's like, ah, a silver platter with all of this information, you going to do something with that? <laughs> the SEC did then absolutely nothing with this information. Well done, SEC. Maybe they're now on this like Twitter stuff because people are like, yo, how about you do something? And now they do lots of stuff, which is nice. Although then there's the whole crypto thing, which just seemed to be like full of scams and cons. And although I guess now there's that dude, he's like, he's on bail or whatever for like a billion dollars or something insane. Um, so it does seem like they're doing something. That's the SEC, right? What's the FTC? That's a different one. I think that's to do with like product quality or something. We call it, oh God, what's it called in the UK? I don't, oh, I don't remember. I don't know. I don't know. Let's move on. Seeing that he had been ignored, Markopoulos then proceeded to submit another 17-page complaint in November of 2001 that included the complete detailed calculations that he, would, he had performed. This is seven years before this was exposed. Over three years later, he submitted another 19-page report that included a detailed breakdown of Madoff's public trading records, which showed that Madoff had never once reported a single monthly net loss in the 40-year history of his company. Two months after that, he scheduled a meeting with the SEC to present his findings in person. The SEC are like, oh, fuck off, Markopoulos. Stop bothering us. We're busy. There's tweets to read, Markopoulos. And can you guess what happened? In 2006, he submitted another 21-page report that began with big that began with big bold letters on the cover that read the the world's largest hedge funds is a fraud clearly he was tired of being subtle and using this method markopoulos essentially clickbaited the sec into taking his concerns seriously this guy had the youtube algorithm locked down in 2006 <laughs> this uh, oh my god it's actually amazing this time his urgency seemed to have paid off Following this fourth and final complaint, the SEC opened an investigation into Madoff's firm and conducted an audit at this company's office. All it took was for this dude to like send a giant printed thing saying, yo, what's up guys? Stop ignoring me. They double-checked his records, interviewed Madoff and other higher-ups at the company and searched for evidence of any wrongdoing. They marched up and down the halls of his expansive 19th floor office and in the end identified several small problems, including a failure to maintain an adequate compliance program. For this, the firm was fined $2.6 million. However, they did not uncover any evidence of the Ponzi scheme or any criminal activity. Their problem, you see, was that they did not know about the office on the 17th floor, the office where Madoff squirreled away the evidence of his crimes because he didn't show up on any of the company's official records of these it's an it's an entire floor of a building how do you hide that obviously madoff was not about to direct investigators to it so the sec left that day feeling they'd done their job and probably having some choice words for the man who sent them on a wild golden goose chase for now madoff and his family were safe but all that was about to change as his firm and the rest of the economy was about to take a nosedive at that point madoff you've got to be like it's time to go and see my face changer in mexico and go to my compound in Brazil. The economy crashes. 
So let's talk about how Bernie Madoff's scheme eventually failed. First, as I said earlier, Bernie was very capable of recruiting new investors and keeping his old investors happy. He was able to keep the scheme running for much longer than most, however, by their very nature, Ponzi schemes are not financially viable in the long run. This is because they are not capable of generating legitimate money on their own, and the longer they last, the more money they owe to investors. Eventually, no matter how good you are at running a Ponzi scheme, you will not be able to gather enough money to keep the scheme afloat because the scheme will always be losing money. In Bernie's case, even though he'd collected tens of billions of dollars from his investors and paid out over half of them, he still owed approximately $65 billion more of the money he was running out. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's in a $65 billion hole, which is just God damn, how can you spend that amount of money? When the 2008 financial crisis arrived, it caused panic to spread throughout Wall Street like wildfire, and as people watched their accounts reduced to a fraction of what they'd once been, many began to divest their stock holdings. This resulted in Bernie's pool of potential new investors drying up, and a large number of his existing investors are requesting to have their funds returned to them immediately. For Bernie, it was a worst-case scenario. He's like, uh-oh. <laughs> Quick to Mexico! Prep the OR! I need that face you've got on ice! On December the 10th, 2008, with the walls closing in, Bernie gathered his family on the night of the company's Christmas party, sat them down, and said, It's time for me to get my fate. No, he said, I have a confession to make. Then, as they fell silent, he continued, I have been running a Ponzi scheme. Mmm! Mmm! You just don't imagine the dude just sitting there, and then they're just like... The bottom, you know that feeling sometimes where something bad happens to you and you just like, I've, you know, people say the bottom drops out and you're just like, wachonk, like that feeling. You know that feeling? Can you imagine that? That's like the wachonk of wachonks. Is that, am I the only one who feels that way? That like feeling where you're like, oh God, no. <laughs> According to his sons, Mark and Andrew's jaws hit the floor and Ruth looked at Bernie quizzically and asked, what's a Ponzi scheme? <laughs> then, speaking through tears, Bernie admitted to his family what he had done. He said that the past few years had all been a lie and he owed $50 billion to his investors. And that money, he said, oh, was gone. Ruth and Andrew were shocked into silence. Mark was beyond furious. He stormed out of the home and left the rest, let the rest of them sob together. Later that night, after Andrew had also left, Bernie and Ruth put on a brave face, attended the company's Christmas party for about half an hour, and then returned home to get some sleep. The next day, the FBI arrived on the doorstep. Andrew and Mark had turned their father in the previous night. The agents that stood before him asked one simple thing, an honest and innocent explanation for the accusations leveled against him. Yeah, you're like, Berners. Yeah, I mean... Surely not, right, Berners? Surely not. I mean, our pension fund's in there, Berners. And he'd be like, yeah, boys, sorry about that. <laughs> you want to place the handcuffs on me? Let's go. Bernie took a breath, looked them in the eyes, and admitted that there was no innocent explanation. It had all been one giant lie. The days and weeks that followed came and went in a flash. Bernie's face was plastered all over TVs in exposés with titles like Top Broker Accused of $50 Billion Fraud and The 17th Floor Where Wealth Went to Vanish and they filled every newspaper stand. Bernie himself was released on bail the day after his arrest, and he and Ruth returned to their New York penthouse to await the consequences of Bernie's actions and avoid the press at all costs. On Christmas Eve, feeling hopeless and seeing no way out, Bernie and Ruth sat together in their bedroom, held each other's hands, and swallowed what they believed to be a lethal dose of sleeping pill. Ruth later said that she was thankful they both woke up and called her and Bernie's attempted suicide a cowardly and impulsive mistake. I had no idea they attempted to do that. Wow. I mean, I know I make a lot of fun of this, and I know Bernie Madoff lost people a lot of money, but that's still sad, isn't it? I don't know, maybe I, d I didn't lose any money with Bernie Madoff because I was like a teenager. <laughs> Even now, I'm like, why would I be in bed? <laughs> like, uh, but still, it does feel 
like a lot, doesn't it? Especially for his wife. She didn't even know what a fucking Ponzi scheme was. The finer details. In total, Madoff was charged with 11 counts. They included securities fraud, money laundering, investment, investment advisor fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, perjury, theft from an employee benefit plan, and multiple money laundering charges. He pled guilty to every single one. There was no plea bargain, and that was likely because there was no hope of obtaining one. Many people speculate how he might have, how he may have chosen to forego any legal strategy that could have reduced his possible sentence because he wanted to avoid naming any co-conspirators and potentially implicating his wife, children, brother, or friends. According to Bernie, nobody in the family was even aware of his secret office on the 17th floor, which was used for approximately two decades. In front of the judge, Madoff said that he was thankful for an opportunity to tell his side of the story. He said that when the Ponzi scheme began, he fully intended to invest the funds that it originally promised. However, because the markets were in turmoil in the early 1990s, he found it impossible to make money as a legitimate trader. Okay, so these are the, that's the, exactly the final details that I was looking for earlier. It's not like he suddenly just triggered one day that he was just going to start scamming people. There was an inciting event, which, while not forgivable, at least is a bit more understandable. He said that despite never making any assurances of returns in the early days, his, his investors were the type of people who demanded that his strategies outpace, outpace the market and turn a profit, regardless of the state of the economy, and he felt compelled to satisfy them. After realizing that making a profit during such a time was impossible, he then began depositing the money into a chase account to keep it safe until the markets became more predictable, and he falsified statements to keep his investors happy and avoid them taking their money elsewhere. He said that he fully intended to resume trading at some point. However, as time went on, he found it impossible to deliver the funds that he had promised in the falsified statements and was forced to continue robbing Peter to pay Paul in order to conceal his failures. Yeah, it's like there's that spiral. There's that spiral of like, oh my god, and now I'm really much more screwed than I was before. <laughs> oh, like I say, understandable, a more understandable, but no less forgivable. He also took full responsibility, stating that his wife and children were only ever involved in running the legitimate side of his investment company, and then apologized to the court, his family, and anyone else that had taken money from. In total, it was determined that Madoff had stolen approximately $17.5 billion from the investors that were a part of his secret investment club. These victims numbered over 37,000 people from 100 and 36 countries. Good lord. In total, it was determined that, yeah, but it'd be going on for two decades, right? On his behalf, Madoff's attorneys requested that he be given a lenient sentence due to his cooperation and his advanced age. They first requested seven years and then altered that request to 12. Ah, yes, that is not happening. Like, I know it was over a century. I feel like it was like 250 years or something or 100, 150? 150 years? Something like that. It was a lot. It was, he's going to die in prison. Due to the secretive nature of his crimes and the length of time that had passed since they began, investigators were not able to say definitively when Madoff's schemes began. However, they do not believe that they started in the 1990s as Madoff claimed. They questioned whether or not he may have been running this sort of scheme, albeit on a much smaller and more manageable scale, since the beginning. With all his cards on the table and the weight of some of the most influential people in the world being felt in that courtroom, the judge denied his lawyer's request for 12 years and sentenced him to the maximum possible sentence, 150 years in prison. Nailed it. Yes. As justification for this heavy sentence, the judge called Bernie's actions extraordinarily evil and cited the fact that he had not received a single letter on Bernie's behalf from his friends or family testifying to his character. He said that the absence of such support is telling. That's fucking savage. Wait. People wanted, they were like, I'd like some letters telling B that you're a good person that I'll consider being lenient. And people were like, no. <laughs> Fucking hell. That says something, doesn't it? Madoff's brother, Peter, the man who'd been beside Bernie since the beginning by serving as his chief compliance officer. Ah. 
That's an uncomfortable job, isn't it? At Bernie Madoff's company. He was responsible for ensuring the firm followed all laws and regulations related to finance. The responsibility that he willfully neglected was charged and later pled guilty to commit securities fraud, mail fraud, and making false statements to regulators. These charges earned him 10 years in prison. God damn, dude. These are some heavy... Like, 150 years is like death in prison, but 10 years is like... That's a stretch. I mean, he stole a lot of people's money. He stole. He's probably out of prison now, isn't he? he? Must be. Several other longtime employees of the firm were also charged for their involvement and given sentences that ranged between two and six years. These included Annette Bongiorno, a portfolio manager convicted of conspiracy to commit securities fraud, Jerome Ahara and George Perez, two programmers charged with fraud for fabricating the false statements. Oh no, Jerome and George. <laughs> I don't know what their crimes were, but if you can imagine, Bernie's like, yo, Jerome, can you uh, go into Photoshop and change this? Like, put an extra zero on the end of that line. And Jerome's like, are you sure, boss? He's like, yeah, 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 do what I say, Jerome. Six years in prison, Jerome. Or two to six, or whatever it was. I mean, <laughs> it just feels like, yeah, don't do, well, don't do crimes, huh? Don't do crimes. Joan Creepy, an accounts manager, and Frank DePascali, the company's chief financial officer. Recovering the money. When discussing large amounts of money, it can be difficult to comprehend the true size of a ridiculous number like $17.5 billion, because for the average person, it's impossible to conceptualize that much of anything. I could tell you he stole enough to purchase over 566,000 Toyota Camrys, but that number is equally unimpactful because our brains are simply not accurately able to comprehend a number that large. So. In this section, instead of trying to impress you with large numbers, I'm going to focus on Bernie's victims themselves. And keep in mind that when I say victims, I'm not just talking about infinitely wealthy individuals like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, or Elon Musk. Madoff did not discriminate when deciding who to take money from. He gladly accepted funds from elderly retirees on fixed income as quickly as he did a wealthy oil baron. Remember, Bernie did not mind taking the scraps, and many of his victims were middle-class people who had worked their entire lives and trusted him with their retirements. They had done everything right. However, in the blink of an eye, it had all disappeared, and many were left without any savings whatsoever. It's also easy to downplay the severity of some white-collar crime because it's hard to feel so strongly about the actions of a person whose actions don't result in either death, dismemberment, or some other gruesome thing that draws people to true crime. However, the effects of white-collar crime can be just as tragic. And also, there's the scale of it. Like, he victimized so many people. It was like 30-something thousand. But it's like, yes, one murder is obviously a lot worse than stealing someone all of someone's money. But when you do it at scale, it really like if there was a point system attributed to this, like a true like utilitarian uh, ethic style. This would be, there'd be a lot of negative points, wouldn't there? In one instance, Madoff accepted funds from a pension plan that was designated to give monthly payouts to retirees. Many of these people didn't even know that the company in charge of safeguarding their pensions had been using Madoff to handle their retirement funds. That meant that regular checks they received for years of hard work, dedication, and sacrifice just suddenly stopped arriving. Those affected received little advance notice and quickly found their bank accounts empty with no way to refill them. Because of this, there are many stories of women and men in their 70s, 80s, and even 90s having to return to work to make ends meet, which is crazy, which is just wrong. Like being, like my parents are not in their 70s yet and they've been retired for ages. And it's just like, just having to, just picturing them having to go back to work would be brutal. 
Bernie did not care if those funds were used to help needy individuals as he willingly accepted money from charities and other non-profits who had hoped to use Madoff's strategy to grow their money in order to help a greater number of people. Bernie also targeted big names such as Steven Spielberg, actors and actresses such as Kevin Bacon, John Malkovich and Kyra Sedgwick and talk show host Larry David. Talk show's Larry David, isn't he known for, um... Am I wildly wrong? I've not seen the show, but isn't Larry David the Curb Your Enthusiasm guy? Yeah, created by Larry David. Larry David has done more stuff than Curb Your Enthusiasm. There you go, the more you know. <laughs> Government officials such as New Jersey Senators Loretta Weinberg and Frank Lautenberg also, were also targeted. Together, they lost a total of over $14 million. As the dust began to settle and the full implications of what had happened came into focus, more than 15,400 claims were filed against Madoff shortly after his arrest, and the government began working overtime on behalf of these victims to recover their lost investments. In December of 2008, Irving Picard was appointed to be the trustee in charge of liquidating Madoff's remaining assets and recovering as much of the stolen money as possible. <laughs> Irving Picard's like, nice, I have a gig for decades because this is the ultimate ball of string that's just got tangled up into something insane. And now I, I, I don't know, like, I think this would be quite a quite satisfying, right? I mean, obviously it's dark and stuff, but you're the good guy who comes in and it's like, let's figure all this out. It's got like a giant logical puzzle to sort through. They started with Bernie himself. Every single item that he owned was taken and liquidated. Together with his wife, that amounted to approximately $825 million worth of assets. Of those, $92.6 million were listed in Ruth's name alone, but we will talk about what happened to her and the rest of the Madoff family in the next section. Beyond his immediate family, Picard also went after individuals who had made large amounts of money off the scheme by investing and cashing out early before it collapsed. Um... Wait. Oh, I do know this. These people who made money off it, they were included in this, right? The the dude went to put them all back into the fund to distribute them to everybody equally. Which is just like, you'd think, oh, thank God I got out of that early. And then they'd be like, knock, knock, knock. <laughs> Where's our money? And be like, I did nothing wrong. What the f***? Everyone got f***ed, man. Everyone got f***ed. One of these people was an early investor named James Jeffrey Pickower. Between 1995 and 2008, Pickower invested heavily in Madoff's firm and as such profited accordingly. However, unlike most of Madoff's investors, Pickower was eventually paid all of what he was owed. During an investigation into Madoff's possible accomplices, Picard was made aware that Pickower had withdrawn approximately $5.1 billion more than he had invested. Jesus Christ. This is so much money we're talking about here. That's not million, that's billion. I didn't misread. And that the account statements that Pickower had been provided with throughout the years by Madoff were obviously ludicrous. Some of, oh, okay, so if it's like, you should have known better, you, it's like, okay, you knew. You knew there was something dodgy going on, and you just carried on anyway. Well, okay, then have at it. Some of Pickower's accounts showed annual returns equaling between 120 and 950%. Look, look, look. General rule of thumb that I live by is if someone is promising you an investing return over 10%, it's not possible. Don't it just just be like it's too good to be true. Nine hundred and fifty percent, and assuming you've got like five point one billion dollars or whatever somewhere, you're rich. You know this can't be real. For reference, the expected return on a well-managed investment is approximately five to eight percent. Picard argued that these returns were so implausibly high that Picower, an accountant and money manager himself, must have known that something was not right. He sued Picower on behalf of Madoff's victims in federal court and in the end won the lawsuit. However, Picower himself would not live to see the result. On October 25, 2009, he suffered a stress-induced heart attack 
back while exercising in his swimming pool. After his death, Jeffrey Pickaway's wife, Barbara, the executor of his estate, was ordered to pay $7.2 billion into the fund, the largest amount recovered from a single person throughout the entire ordeal. Barbara herself was happy to pay the amount to see the matter resolved and felt so bad about her late husband's actions that she used the remainder of his estate to found the JPB Foundation, a nonprofit that funds medical research and helps impoverished individuals. Good for you. Another target of Picard's legislative vengeance was JP Morgan Chase, Bernie Madoff's personal bank. Picard sued them for $6.4 billion based on the fact that he believed the bank had actual knowledge of the scheme and had ignored multiple red flags in order to continue doing business with and profiting from Bernie's investment. Firm. Obviously, these claims were not unfounded, as an eventual settlement was reached for $1.7 billion, but the details of that settlement are sealed. The bank was also forced to admit that it had failed to report evidence of Madoff's fraud to, to regulators, and they were charged with another $350 million fine by the government. It's just. Uh, what's this one? $350 mil? No worries. Another target was the hedge funds, such as the Tremont Group, which had worked alongside and unknowingly profited from the scheme. They were forced to pay back the profits that it earned based on the fact that they, like Chase Bank, had ignored signs of Bernie's crimes. I guess that the, the actual knowledge thing that Matt put in quotes earlier, I feel is like that's like, you know, actual knowledge. I feel that's important. Like with, I know these are civil offenses, but still like the people who knew something was up like the money manager, who's like 950% returns, is like, bro, come on now, come on now. But like, if you didn't know, it just seems like, I mean, again, everyone got, like I said, everyone got. I guess the question is, are you the one doing the f***ing? And I definitely, allegedly think some of these guys knew that something was up, right? In total, Picard sought to recover a sum of over $100 billion from those he sued, but in the end, he only up ended up collecting $14.4 billion, approximately 70% of what had been lost. Well, where are you going to get a 100 bill from then? While some people saw this as a win, keep in mind that the actual estimated loss of $17.5 billion did not cover what most people felt they'd been robbed of. Remember, Madoff had been feeding his clients falsified statements that showed substantial growth for years, even decades in some cases, and many believed that in that time, their money had grown exponentially. Oh, come on. You gotta, like, if this came out and I got my original money back, I'll be like, oh, thank fuck. <laughs> I wouldn't expect the now fictional amounts. <laughs> While Madoff had only actually stolen and misappropriated $17.5 billion, the fictional profits that investors had been promised totaled over $65 billion. In addition to that, these funds were not distributed until 2017, almost a decade since Bernie was arrested, and in that time, many people had no savings whatsoever. Some died without ever seeing justice. To make matters even worse, many of those who died did so by their own hand. When the news broke and people saw that their money had disappeared overnight, when they saw all those zeros had turned into a single zero, many did not wait to be made whole. Many chose to end their lives right then and there. Family Dysfunction To say that Bernie's crimes affected his family would be a massive understatement. He may have attempted to shield those he loved from the consequences of his actions, and even though his wife and children did not face any criminal consequences, they did suffer financially, socially, and emotionally. Despite Bernie's attempts to take blame for it all, their lives were effectively ruined too. Ruth, who had acted as the director of an investment firm in, his final, in its final years, claimed to have no knowledge of Bernie's crimes or the secret office below their main office. This is unlikely considering she supervised the entire business and handled the family's personal finances, so she was eventually sued by Picard in civil court and lost. At the time of the lawsuit, she had $92.6 million worth of assets listed in her name. These included the following. A mansion in Palm Beach, Florida, valued at $11 million. A penthouse in Manhattan, valued at $7 million. An apartment in Cap d'Antibes on the French 
Orange Riviera, valued at $1.5 million. <laughs> Peasant. <laughs> $1.5 million? Why is this? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's, that's expensive, obviously. It just feels like way less than a $7 million apartment in Manhattan. $8.8 million worth of boats and luxury yachts, $2.6 million in jewelry, and $62 million worth of cash and municipal bonds. I don't know what a municipal bond is, but that's a lot of cash to be holding. All of this was taken, however, she was allowed to retain 2.5 million pounds uh, dollars sorry, as part of the agreement. During Bernie's trial, Ruth was heavily criticized for her silence as she refused to make media appearances or publicly denounce her husband's actions. However, considering she was involved in Picard's lawsuit, saying anything to the public likely went against the advice of her counsel, and for this reason I felt she cannot be faulted for this particular criticism. Ruth did eventually come out and apologize in a 2011 interview with CBS, but that didn't change the public's perception of her, and since then she has become a social recluse. Today, she lives in a house in Old Greenwich, Connecticut. Bernie's sons, Mark and Andrew, both claim to have been unaware of their father's crimes until December of 2008, and while they were not formally charged with their involvement, there has been much speculation that they, like their mother and uncle, were actively involved in the scheme. Mark was the head of trading, Andrew was the co-director of trading operations, both would have had a knowledge of the day-to-day -day operations of the firm. As a result, they both suffered tremendous backlash from their business associates, friends, and extended families, many of whom had been invested in and lost money from the scheme themselves. Oh my god. Bernie, why would you let your family invest in this? <laughs> As financial professionals working in New York and daring the name Madoff, neither brother was ever able to fully escape the shadow of their father's crimes. Their long and successful careers suddenly meant nothing, and neither man was able to find work outside of the debunked firm. As the months ticked away, Picard also began pursuing the brothers' personal assets, as both had amassed millions from the scheme. On December the 11th, 2010, the two-year anniversary of their father's arrest, Mark Madoff committed suicide inside the closet of his New York City apartment. While the exact reason has never been confirmed, his suicide note revealed that he had extreme remorse for his father's actions and allegedly admitted to having knowledge of the scheme before December 2008. The following year, as a result of civil lawsuits, Mark's estate reached a settlement by agreeing to surrender approximately half of his personal assets. The total amount surrendered is not publicly available, as far as I'm aware. Ruth blamed herself for Mark's death. She said that she should not have stood by Bernie and instead focused on the rest of her family, the ones who needed her the most. Andrew Madoff also met an early death in 2014 from mantle cell lymphoma, a rare type of cancer that he'd been suffering from since 2003. Yeah, however you want to, like, pace it, frame it and stuff, and as much as a bad dude bernie madoff was that's you know it's not it's just the family is fallout it's just brutal even I, I don't know if they knew though oh who knows who knows the sec at the beginning of this episode we asked how the sec could possibly have allowed this to happen and now that you've got a better understanding of the circumstances and how truly negligent they were it's time to answer that question, or more accurately, it's time for me to tell you how the US government answered that question. As a direct result of both the 2008 financial crisis and Madoff's Ponzi scheme, an investigation into the SEC was launched that attempted to root out systematic problems within the organization. In general, it was discovered that they were underfunded and unable to properly oversee many new and risky investment strategies that had been developed on Wall Street in recent years. They found that the banks themselves had been operating without proper oversight for at least 15 years, and that when a problem was identified, the SEC did not possess the authority to impose effective penalties. They also discovered that whistleblower complaints had been going unanswered for years because of either negligence, incompetence, or simple corruption within the SEC. Yeah, Markopoulos was like, guys, look at it, look at it. And they're just like, chill, Harry. It's good, man. It's all good. And we didn't have the money even if we wanted to. We got so much to do and not enough money and not enough people. 
Regarding Madoff's crime, specifically, it was revealed that Harry Markopoulos was not the only person trying to warn the SEC about Madoff. And between 1992 and 2008, over a dozen separate complaints have been filed against him, and a total of six investigations have been launched. One of the complaints described in detail how Madoff always kept two separate sets of records for the same transactions, one of which was stored on his laptop, which he kept on his person at all times. Despite extreme specifics such as these, not one of these six investigations resulted in any tangible evidence of any wrongdoing. Harry Markopoulos himself testified at these hearings and resubmitted copies of his initial complaints for the record. What, the SEC just lose them? They don't have those on file? Seems important! He was the type of man who wanted to see the SEC exposed for the incompetent shills that he believed them to be. When the investigation was complete, a 477-page report was released along with a 22-page summary of their findings, and although the first paragraph of the summary makes it abundantly clear that no evidence of corruption was found, I do think that some things are worth mentioning. For instance, the organization's commissioner, Elsie Walter, and chairman Mary Shapiro were both close personal friends of the Madoff family and its assistant director Eric Swanson was romantically involved with Shana Madoff, Peter Madoff's daughter, and Bernie Madoff's niece. Um, uh, just big, fat old, like, that could just be coincidence. And allegedly, and yeah, it's not my belief that that's indicative of anything. It's just an interesting tidbit, isn't it? Also, as is typical for wealthy families in America, Madoff's family had contributed to many political campaigns throughout this time, including roughly 240000 to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. After Bernie was arrested, only $100,000 of this money was returned and added to Picard's Victims Fund. As a result of this investigation, several members of the SEC were either demoted or resigned. These included Genevieve Walker-Lightfoot, the supervisor in charge of Madoff's botched investigations, Eric Swanson, the man involved in a romantic relationship with Shana, and David Cott, the organization's Inspector General. The SEC also established a new department dedicated to investigating large-scale financial fraud and avoiding a repeat, a repeat of past mistakes. Wait, isn't the SEC's job investigating large-scale financial fraud? Isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> we got a new department for that. <laughs> the Patriarch's Death After his sentencing, Bernie was shipped away to the Metropolitan Correctional Center and later transferred to the Federal Correctional Complex in Butler, North Carolina. In terms of visitors, he had a few beside the media, and most of these, those he refused to speak with. Ruth visited him infrequently in the beginning. However, after Mark's suicide, she stopped speaking to him altogether. It's believed that she wished to support Andrew in his final years as his cancer progressed and knew that Bernie stood in the way of that. After losing everyone around him, Bernie's health also began to decline, and by 2020, he was diagnosed with chronic kidney failure and given 18 months to live. He applied for compassionate release based on his doctor's belief that catching COVID-19 would be fatal. However, this request was denied due to the severity of his crimes. Bernie Madoff died on April 24, 2021, at the age of 82. His body was cremated, and his ashes were not claimed by any member of his extended family. And that's the end of Bernie Madoff and today's episode. The one crazy one is, you know the guy who did the... um. Lockerbie bombing. He was released by Scotland on compassionate grounds and he killed like 100 people or something nuts. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> the severity of his crimes? That guy should not have been let out of prison. What the? Uh, that's the end of today's episode. It was dark, definitely dark, but it was nice there was no murder. Thanks for being here. I'll see you next time. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.